Psalm 1, verses 1 to 6. As I read it, this is the third time we've had it read out. This is the third uh, in our series of looking at our family values. Uh, As I read it out, just pay close attention to verse 5 and 6. That's where we're going to spend our time this afternoon. So let me read. Uh, I'm going to pray. And as I pray, my prayer is that David's conclusion, as he gets to the end of the psalm, um, would unsettle us, uh, would move us to action, and in particular would move us to see that a sinful world urgently, urgently needs the tangible presence of Jesus' church. So let me read and then I'll pray. The way of the righteous and the wicked... Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you are Lord of all. We believe that even though many don't have eyes to see that you are God, over this city, over this nation, over this world. And we are so glad that that is the case. We thank you as we come and gather in your presence this afternoon with your people. We are reminded of truth. We are encouraged by truth. We're able to declare it, but but we really want to believe it. And we want to be changed by it. So as we meditate on these few verses for the next few moments we pray that you would plant this truth deep into our hearts and bring about a change that not only has us make uh, make us look more like your son but but many other people in this area as well encourage us convict us challenge us to be the people you've called us to be a people who are your ambassadors a people who are your missionaries people who are your witnesses in this place and to the ends of the earth. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that these are your words, that they are living and active. They are sharper than any two-edged sword. And because we believe that that is true, we pray in expectation that you will change us with them. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor will sinners be in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We've seen over these last few weeks, haven't we, that there are really only two ways to live. If you've been tracking along with us over the last couple of weeks, we talked about the righteous and the wicked. We talked about the righteous 
Those who are sons and daughters of God, they are, are those who have put their trust in God. They are those who are holding on to the truth of God's word. We saw that in verses one and two. And then last week we saw that if that is you, if you are a Christian, if you confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, then the promise for you is a life of glorious transformation. We saw that last week. We are increasingly being changed and conformed and grown into the beautiful image of our saviour, Jesus. That is the promise for you now. And there is a promise of eternal blessing for you. There is one way to live that looks like eternal blessing, but then there are those that David calls the wicked, the sinners. And if you are a Christian this afternoon, you are, you are only not counted in that camp because of the grace of God. You are only not counted as a sinner and as, as one who is wicked and one who is outside of the people of God because of the grace of God. Didn't we see that last week? It's nothing that you have done. It's not your strength. It's not your good deeds. It is the grace of God that moves you from being labeled as a sinner to being labeled as one who is righteous. It is only the grace of God that saves you. It is by the grace of God that you are saved. And David points out three specific things just in these two last verses of the psalm. Three specific things that we are saved from. Firstly, in verse 5, he says that we are saved from not being those who, who stand in the judgment. Secondly, we are saved from not being those who, who stand in the congregation of the righteous. Or who don't stand in the congregation of the righteous. And thirdly, in verse 6, ultimately, we are saved from death. As David writes this psalm, he is looking towards the end of all things. He is looking towards a time when the Bible says Jesus will return. He will come back to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, everyone who has ever lived, whether you're a Christian or not, you will stand before Jesus and you will give an account for your life. You will come before Jesus on that day in judgment. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, we will come before God, who is a righteous judge. And David is saying here that on that day we will either stand or we will fall in his presence. We will either stand or we won't be able to stand in his presence. Listen to what David says in another one of his psalms. These are going to come up on the screen. Psalm 130, verse 3, he says this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that's our wrongdoings against God. If you, O Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And then a few hundred years after David writes that psalm, the prophet Ezra is lamenting about the unrighteousness within God's people. And he says this. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, no one can stand before you. The Bible builds a picture that if there is any spot of sin, if there is any unrighteousness, if there is any mark of guilt upon you, then when that final day comes and you stand before Jesus in judgment, you will not be able to stand. You will fall in his presence. You will not be able to stand and give a defense. If there is any hint of sin and guilt in your life, you will fall on that day. And there will be no hiding in verse 6 of Psalm 1. And Ryan's already reminded us from, from another one of David's psalm. God knows everything. He knows us. Didn't we see this last week? He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us in our very hearts. He knows our motives, our desires, our deepest and darkest thoughts. So on that day in judgment, when every single one of us stands before Jesus, you cannot hide. 
There's no sneaking past him. There's no presenting your, your good works and, and oh, but I was, I was a good person. No, no one can hide from him. He knows those who are wicked and he knows those who are righteous. Folks, the guilty sinner will not be able to stand on that day. And in verse 6, we see the penalty for guilty sinners is that they will perish. The penalty for guilty sinners is death. And David isn't talking about physical death here. Physical death comes to us all. Like, it's coming. If you didn't know that, sorry to bear the, the bad news to you, but it's coming. Every single one of us. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. That is the penalty for standing before God in your guilt on that day of judgment. Spiritual death. And if you want to know what that is, listen to this next verse from Second uh, Thessalonians verse 9 of chapter 1. The Apostle Paul describes spiritual death like this. The punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of his might. See, at that final day, on that day when we stand before judgment, before God in judgment, the guilty sinner will actually get what they've wanted. The absence of God. But with the absence of God also comes the most terrible reality. They will get the absence of God, but they also get the absence of anything that is good. For all eternity. We started this little series a few weeks ago looking at our values, our family values. And we started in verse 1 and 2 looking at the believer's life being an eternity of blessing. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about the weight of that word? It's just the beauty that's captured in that word, blessing being a picture of overflowing and all that is good, spilling over and all that is good and love and joy and peace and harmony and all that is good. Just all of those things bubbling over. That is the, that is the eternity, David says, for those who are righteous, for God's people. That is our future. And David says, on the day of judgment, the Christians and the non-Christians will come before Jesus, but the Christians will be standing Standing together in what he calls the congregation of the righteous in verse 5. We will come before God in judgment. But because Jesus has taken this, all of the penalty for our sin in his death on the cross. There will be no verdict of guilty on us on that day. We will stand together in the congregation of the righteous. We will be clothed in his righteousness. There will be no mark of sin on us because it has all been taken already by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. There will be no penalty for us because Jesus Christ has already taken it for us in his death and his resurrection. There will be no condemnation for us because Jesus has already taken it in his death and in his resurrection. On that day, we will be declared not guilty. And instead, we will stand together and rejoice in our Saviour. And listen to this from Romans 14, verse 4. This is the Apostle Paul looking forward to the day of judgment, talking about the Christians and, and what it will be like for us on that day. He says this, they will be upheld. We're not going to fall down. They will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. 
That is a reminder, folks, that we will stand not because of our goodness, not because we have proved ourselves to be worthy of it, not because we have managed to manipulate God, not because we're good people. No, we will stand on that day in judgment because of Jesus, because of what he has done, because of his finished work on the cross, because of his perfect life, because he has risen from the grave, because he is interceding for us now. The only way we can stand on that day of judgment is because of Jesus. And if you're a believer this afternoon, that should fill you with joy. That should fill you with love. That should fill you with worship for him. Because he is saving you from an eternity of destruction. The certain future of those who hold on to the truth of God's word is blessing in the presence of God. But the certain future of those who reject the truth of God's word is eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And folks, that should unsettle us. And it should move us to action. Firstly, it should move you, if you haven't already, to put your faith in Jesus. Because without him, you will come before God in judgment, guilty of your sin. And destined to make payment for your sin yourself. But God in his mercy has sent his son. To take that judgment for you. And Jesus came and he lived the perfect life. And he suffered a cruel death on that cross. And he rose again from the grave. And he offers to you freely. At no cost. Freely. He offers to you the gift of salvation. To save you from eternal destruction. And so if you haven't already put your faith in Jesus and follow him. Put away your pride. Put away the lies that that you think you can make this, this life on your own. And escape what is coming on your own. Put it away. Acknowledge your sinfulness. And put your faith in the person and work of Jesus to save you from your sin. That is the first thing that we should do if we haven't done it already. Listen, Psalm 1, folks, it's not just a warning for the sinner. This psalm, especially verses 5 and 6, are a wake-up call to the righteous. See, we could really easily, if you're a Christian, we could really easily stand over here and think, oh, our future's secure. I know where I'm going. I'm going to be standing with the congregation of the righteous. Thank you, Jesus. And yes, that is a right response. But let's not ignore the reality that is facing so many people around us. Friends, if we read Psalm chapter 1, with the knowledge that there are 1.6 billion in this region who, who don't confess Jesus as Lord, with the knowledge there are over five and a half billion people around the world who don't confess Jesus as Lord. If we read this, we can't, we can't read this with that knowledge, knowing what is coming to them and be passive. We can't just stand over here and say, thank you, Jesus, for what is coming and not be moved to action for those who currently will not be standing with us. We can't just read Psalm 1 and be thankful that we'll escape judgment and that we'll be over there with the congregation of the righteous. 
And we know that there are people that we know and people that we laugh with and people that we love and people that we eat with and people that we live with who on that day will be over here falling under the condemnation of their own sin. That is why we are passionate about the third in our family values, our value of presence, specifically being a tangible presence. We want to be a community. We want to be a church who, who have our eyes open to our eternal destiny, but also the eternal destiny of those around us. We want to be a people who we've been reminded already are present, tangibly present in the places that God has put us. And when we say tangibly present, we don't just mean that, that, that we're, we're present in a way where we, we go to the same coffee shop every week or, or present in a way where we get on really well with our neighbours. That, that's good, that's part of it, but what we're talking about is being tangibly present. Do you know what that word means, tangible? It means you can feel something, you can feel the difference. That's what we want to be as God's people, people who are in the places that God has put us. And and because of all of the realities of the gospel that are planted within us, we make a difference to our communities. And listen, I'm not just talking about living out the gospel. That's not it. That's part of it. It's living out the gospel and it's speaking, proclaiming the gospel. Please let us not think that we are doing the job that God has called us to do by just being good people. Or just being amongst unbelievers or just turning up at church on a Sunday. That is not it. We need to open our mouths and tell people and warn them. And tell them of the good news of the gospel. That's what it means to be tangibly present, folks. To live out the gospel and speak out the gospel in the places that we find ourselves. Because we are desperate for those people to be stood amongst the congregation of the righteous on that day of judgment. There is a spiritual disaster coming for so many people around us, friends. A spiritual disaster. And God, in his wisdom, has called us, the church, to go and warn them and to go and call them. Um, a video emerged a few weeks ago. It'll have been out before, but it just kind of popped up again some social media of an interview that a sailor who was on board the Titanic gave. And he, he was interviewed maybe 40 years ago. And he was recounting his experience. He was obviously a survivor of uh, the Titanic disaster. If you don't know what the, the Titanic is or what happened, um, one of the, well, it was reported to be one of the finest cruise liners that had ever been built. It was set in sail on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York. Trying to break a record, getting across as fast as it could. It hit an iceberg and it sank. There were over 2,000 people on board and only 1,500 people, sorry, over 1,500 people died. So only 500 or so people managed to survive. Uh, And this guy is is retelling uh, the story of of what happened from his experience. And it was so vivid. He's he's, uh, speaking to a reporter and it must have been maybe 40 years after uh, the disaster. The disaster was... um, the 15th of April, 1912. And he's given his account, and it was so vivid, it was harrowing to listen to it. He was talking about how he was trying his best to, to get people into lifeboats and um, just the, 
the, the pain and the distress that he's felt since. He says, every night I have nightmares. This is like 40 years later. Every night I have nightmares. I can't sleep. Thinking that I could have done more. Thinking of what I could have done to save more people, to, to warn them, to get them off. He's moved to tears as he shares his story. Folks, the Titanic was one of the biggest sea disasters in our history. Yeah, over 1,500 people died. There are at least four times as many people just in this area alone who are heading for a spiritual disaster. In the years that followed uh, the sinking of the Titanic, there was lots of work done to understand why and what lessons we could learn from it and, and how um, kind of the maritime industry could improve and get safer. And it's interesting, you look at the things that they learned and you put them against the mission that God has given us and it's interesting just to see actually how they help us. The Titanic was meant to be this wonderful uh, experience but actually it ended in disaster. There is a spiritual disaster heading for so many people and we can learn a lot actually when you think of what happened and what went wrong. You think of the mission that God has given us as his people to be present, to be tangibly present in the places that he has put us, to herald the gospel, to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. We can learn quite a lot. Just I've pulled out five things here which are interesting that actually help us understand our mission and understand the spiritual disaster that is heading to so many. The first thing is this. Truth drives the mission. So when the Titanic was made, the owners all believed that the Titanic was unsinkable. Have you heard that? They, they called it the unsinkable ship. And they made a lot of noise about it. Like the journalists jumped on board and they were you know, just boasting about how great the ship was going to be. And they really believed that it was unsinkable. But the truth is, it was. It was sinkable. Of course it was. No one wanted to believe it. Folks, we know the truth. We read Psalm 1 and we see the truth. There is a glorious eternity for God's people, but there is also a spiritual disaster ahead and for those who aren't his. We know the truth and it is the truth of God's word that drives our mission. Guilty sinners will suffer the judgment of eternal destruction. It's the truth of God's word that drives our mission to be tangibly present. That is why we are here. That's why Liberty Church exists, folks. Like we aren't interested in making a name for ourselves. We aren't interested in having a, a beautiful building that looks great and having amazing services. Like, yeah, whatever. That, that isn't why we're here. It is theology that drives our mission. It is the truth of God's word that drives our mission. The reason we planted Liberty Church four and a half years ago is because people desperately need to hear the good news of the gospel. That is why we're here. We're not here for any other reason but to glorify God by bringing more people into his family. It is truth that drives the mission. So don't shy away or put off the reality of hell, folks. Allow that truth to drive our mission. Secondly, sacrifice marks our mission. The second lesson that they learned looking back at the Titanic is that there weren't enough lifeboats. There were only 20 lifeboats on board uh, the Titanic for over 2,000 people. 
And each lifeboat could take maybe 50 people. So you can do the maths. I'm going to hear about that tomorrow, Beth. Um, you do the maths. 20 lifeboats for 2,000 people. This simply wasn't enough. Interestingly enough, the regulation said that was enough. You didn't, you didn't actually have to have enough lifeboats for all the people on board, which seems crazy, but that's all they had to have. And so that's all they put on. They put 20 lifeboats on, on the, the boat because what they didn't want is for, is for um, and the kind of walkways and, and the, the, the parts of the ship with all the beautiful vistas. They didn't want them to be blocked up. They wanted people to be able to sit on their deck chairs and be able to sip champagne and enjoy canapes and not be, have their, their views spoiled by these inconvenient boats. They didn't want to sacrifice comfort. Being tangibly present in our communities, folks, is hard. It takes sacrifice. And it would be so much easier just to float in and out of these doors Sunday to Sunday. And just sit here for an hour and listen to someone speak and sing a few songs and then go home. That isn't the mission that God has called us to. It takes sacrifice. Talking about Jesus with people who are rejecting him is hard. It's scary. (laughs) It's uncomfortable sometimes. It takes sacrifice, but the church is a lifeboat. It's not a cruise liner that's made for comfort. We are a rugged, clumsy, sometimes inconvenient lifesaver that this community needs, even if it doesn't realise it. So don't settle for comfort. Give everything you have to the mission that God has called you into, even if it costs you. Thirdly, the word equips us for mission. Another problem with the lifeboats was that the sailors on board weren't trained how to use them. It took them so long to try and figure out how they were going to lower them to the sea that by the time that a lot of them had been launched, it was too late. Only 16 of the lifeboats managed to launch. Four of them didn't even touch the water. Well, they did eventually, but not when they were supposed to. For us, the idea of opening our mouths and telling someone about Jesus or living in obedience to Jesus in ways that look foolish to those around us, for a lot of us, like that just, we don't know where to start. Like, okay, there's, there's 1.6 million people in this city. Like, where do we start with that? Five and a half billion people. Where do we start? Well, the reality is God's word equips us for mission. We can't do it on our own. And if you're trying to, you'll fail. Your words don't save people. Your actions don't save people. It is the truth of God's word penetrating hard hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit that saves people. So don't try and go out there and just give platitudes to people and tell them of, of, of good things to come. No, tell them the gospel. Give them truth. Put that into their hands. Put that into their minds. It is the word of God that equips us for mission, folks. So if you're nervous about sharing the gospel with someone, read it. Get familiar with it. Know your story. Memorize scripture. Just choose a few simple uh, scriptures, a few simple truths that you can just share with someone. We don't do it in our own strength. Strength that is the word that equips us for mission. So hold on to truth. And be bold to hold out that truth to others too. And next, we need to know that the Spirit leads us in mission. One of the scandals that emerged from the Titanic disaster was 
the bias towards the rich, the overwhelmingly strong preference for the rich who were on board being saved before others. The lifeboats that were on the ship were almost inaccessible to those below first class, which is why most of the survivors who were picked up were wealthy and well off. Folks, if the mission that God has given us was left to us, we would fill this place with people who look like us. People with the same jobs as us, people from the same class as us, people with the same level of income, intellect. Thank God that it is the Spirit who leads us in our mission. And He isn't swayed by money or privilege. The only person that He is interested in is those who are lost. Bringing in the lost into the family of God. He isn't swayed by anything else. And he has called us to join with him in his mission to seek and save the lost. That means people with money and people without money. That means people who look like us and people who don't look like us. People who smell like us and people who don't smell like us. People who have it all together and people whose lives are a train wreck. We follow his lead. And that means that sometimes he will lead us into dark places and dark spaces. Places that we feel uncomfortable. People that we might feel uncomfortable with. Folks, I wonder if some of us need to repent of the sin of discrimination when we think about the mission that God has called us to. When we look at who comes through the doors at the back. When we think about who we want this church to be filled with. Spirit leads us and we follow to whoever and wherever he takes us. To whoever and wherever need the hope of the gospel. And here's the last thing that we see here. Our flesh resists the mission. Uh, Once the few lifeboats that had managed to launch, uh, managed to get away, uh, there came a point in time where the ship had sunk and it was safe to go back. And pick up survivors like they could hear the screams and the shouts and the cries for help. The next day when one of the rescue ships arrived, the people who were on board that ship couldn't understand why the lifeboats were half empty. So only two lifeboats went back out of 60. There was a lack of compassion. A lack of compassion to go back and rescue those who needed saving. The mission that God has given his church is clear. Go into the world and make disciples. Go and be tangibly present. Go amongst the people that I've placed you amongst. And live out the gospel and speak out the gospel. How often does our flesh resist that mission? And we say no. We don't want to be present. We'd rather have a night in. Maybe you actually don't like the people that God's called you to. Or you're intimidated by them. 
You know, when Jesus stood in front of crowds of believers, the Bible says that he was filled with compassion. And that word literally means a twisting of the intestines. Oh, so graphic. Gut-wrenching sorrow. As Jesus looks out onto crowds of unbelievers, as Jesus sees the spiritual disaster that is coming to them, he is moved with compassion. So if you've become lazy or apathetic or bored of the mission, being tangibly present in the place that God has called you into isn't a priority, then in the moment when we pray, I encourage you to ask the Spirit to fill you with the heart that Christ had. The heart of compassion. I'm going to close with this. It's a... I think I'm going to put snot on me. I think I'm going to tissue help me out this is a quote from a guy called Jim Slack you might have heard of him he was a missionary in the 1960s a pioneer mission, missionary to the Philippines he was um, he made a profound impact on world missions he was recruited by Billy Graham like if you get recruited by Billy you're sorted right like you're, you're, you're somebody well he liked to live like he was a nobody but he revolutionized missions and he really just helped people learn what it looks like to be present. He reached thousands of people in the Philippines and mobilized millions right across the globe to go and reach their communities. And this line encapsulates his mission. This is what he said. Own the lostness of your geography. Place where you were place where you live, the street that your house is in, the neighbourhood that you're part of, the place where you get your coffee from or your tea, whatever it is, the park, the footy pitch, wherever it is, make that your responsibility. Own the lostness of your geography broken by it look on the people in your geography with a heart of compassion like Christ ask the spirit to open your eyes to see your neighbours to see your colleagues to see your family like Jesus does and it doesn't all rise and fall on us this is God's work right but he has called us his people to go and to take the good news to those who need to hear So wherever you are, own it. By the power of the Spirit, pray that you would open the eyes of the blind to see the spiritual disaster that they are heading towards. By the power of the Spirit, they would receive the truth of the gospel and they would believe. Our mission will fall flat, by the way, folks, without prayer. And that's why we're going to spend next week just seeing how actually prayer underpins each of our three values, truth, 
transformation and presence. We need prayer in each of those areas. I'm going to spend the week just looking at that and trying to understand that more. But just as we finish, I just want to read and remind us of what our value says about presence. Liberty Church, we say that we will enjoy and practice a tangible presence in our community through word and deed. That's the work that we've been called into. There is a spiritual disaster unfolding around us, but we have been sent by God to share the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus. There is no more important work for us to be about than to be tangibly present in the place that God has placed us.